Hi, everybody, and welcome to Tapped into Psychedelics. I'm your host, Adam Tapp. And today with me is our guest, Jahan Hamzida, who is a PhD and completed his dissertation on psychedelics in the philosophy, cosmology, and conscious doctoral program at the California Institute of Integral Studies, and is the author of a fantastic book called The Psilocybin Connection, Psychedelics and the Transformation of Consciousness and the Evolution of the Planet, an Integral Approach. How are you doing, Jahan? Really good, Adam. It's an honor to be here with you. Thank you. Yeah, man. You know, like we've had a couple conversations now and I read your book and we are going to dive into that book very, very soon because it's full of incredible ideas and the way you wove it together is absolutely fantastic. But I'm always curious when someone comes in who has a PhD, they've dedicated their life to psychedelics. And before we delve into the book and the plethora of other things that you're currently involved in, I would love to sort of just get your perspective of who you are and how you got to this place where you're fundamentally dedicating your adult life to psychedelics. Totally. I want to jump into that. And just also first say, like, again, the honor to be with you here specifically. I've been on over 70 podcasts this year, and most people come in and they're not as well nuanced or aware, aware of psychedelics. You know, they've just started their journey and haven't talking to you and the depths you've gone to, you know, and the way you are dedicating yourself to it. It's, it's, it's awesome. Thanks, man. I have these really conversations. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, because it's it's a lot more fun. It's a lot more depth, and it could be a lot more meaningful than just the normal introductions uh, mm. that come up over and over. And as far as uh, it is an important question of what causes somebody to dedicate their lives to something, how I've been obsessed with this idea of purpose in seventeen. Uh, I don't know how or why that that was the case. Where for hours a day, I was like, "Why was I born?" You know, as if like there was a mission my soul was like here to do. Um, and so. It's been hours of reflection a day for over 20 something years of, I feel there's something like I'm, I do, I move my actions through this world intentionally, right? So the idea of that we have some eternal soul, it, it has more intelligence than whatever I have in my biography right now. So it came in with a purpose to do something. And that's been the felt sense for a long time. Um, and I'm sure we'll get into it later. There's a life-changing experience with psychedelics at 18 and I was suicidal, depressed and an atheist. And I had this big experience of God, which I thought is impossible, um, you know, of divinity, of deep interconnection to the cosmos, of, of eternal love and that everything's actually made of that. And then learning is the second most important quality. And it's erratically shifted the course of my life in two or three hours, like shook me up from the inside out and rearranged me and never the same person again. So it's beautiful to know that's possible. And so that's one kind of thing that, that felt personal experience. And then I had a mushroom journey two or three months after that um, out in the mountains. And in this experience, I saw myself, it seemed like 40,000 years ago in some cave of like darker skin, whether it's native American, native Americans were here at that time, or some were like off in India, but somewhere in the world may, it might've been Africa, just darker skin, older man. And I was serving mushroom tea to people, you know, and I saw me and I just knew there's this person. It's like, that's me. So it's a weird experience at 18. And then there, there was this intuitive sense. I'll be doing the same thing again in my mid thirties. You know, I was 18 years old, 2002, Tucson, Arizona. There's no pathway forward. And really, I didn't see one in terms of a professional life. And so I came in as um, first as a neuroscience major uh, to study the brain and consciousness, you know, especially after such a big experience, realizing all that exists is consciousness and it's such a fascinating, just a mystical experience. It's kind of like the peak experience, the state of oneness. It's hard to get even bigger than that. Uh, and after about a couple semesters of neuroscience, I had this physics teacher that said, if you want to understand the universe, you have to know mathematics and physics. And he was a really awesome, passionate guy. And I was like, well, sure, why not? I want to get to the foundations of all the things. So I did three years of physics and mathematics. And then I had another mushroom dream that said to leave physics. That it wasn't, and even came in dreams of like, this isn't feeding what my soul is wanting. It's not the ultimate depth, mathematics, right? It's just, it's another, just a layer of, math, of reality. Um, and it said to study mysticism. And I was like, that's not a major. That's not a profession. You know, it's, it's, it's not something I can go and study we're, we're directly in school. Nobody's going to pay me. There's no security of any way. And, but there was this like this path of exploration and unending and the unknown and mystery. And I didn't know where it'd end up. But I could see if I kept down physics, it'd be kind of like the death of my soul because it wasn't, I wasn't being fed in the way I wanted. And so that was a hard thing to leave um, a life path after three years, six, seven, eight hours a day of doing math. And went and dropped my classes and minored in physics and math and minored in psych because I love it and switched to philosophy because it was more encompassing. It's like the love of wisdom is what it translates to. Uh, 
so I majored in that, then moved to the Bay Area to study consciousness. I, I decided at 18 because of that journey, partly that I wanted my doctorate, you know, so I was like, I'm the, and I also had a journey around 22, 23, that was like, I was walking around on mushrooms in the university campus. And I was like, maybe I'll be a professor. This way I get to stay in the seat of learning. And I, I love both information of teaching and receiving. And this feminine voice came up like, are you? Like, are you going to commit to this? And I was like, you know, this is the best kind of life path I could think of right now. This is really, really enjoyable. Yes, why not? So like for 15 years, I was like, I'm going to be a professor around age, you know, 22 to about um, maybe 35 to 37. I was like, that, that was my trajectory. Um, so I moved to the Bay Area to study consciousness because I wanted the accreditations, got the master's in consciousness transformative studies from JFK University, the natural stectos philosophy, cosmology, and consciousness at CIIS. And, and even that program encompassed everything I ever wanted to learn for the most part. And as I kept moving forward, I was did a lot of therapy, did a lot of non-stop workshops, but I got very clear that psychedelics were the most transformative experience of my life. As the clinical evidence shows, in terms of statistics, nothing is comparable. It's not that I don't love all the other methods. It's just there's not. When you introduce a chemical compound that in moments reorganizes the brain and how it functions and your identity and your experience of reality and space and time, nothing comes close to that. I mean, uh, as a small side note, I got really into meditation for a while, did one hour, two hours, three hours a day, kind of had that kind of more stereotypical like ego death, I'm dying, the, like beaming, feeling like God. And the first thought that arose was I've experienced this on psilocybin. This just took me hundreds of hours, you know? So meditation has its own beauty, you know, but in terms of state experiences, nothing is as effective as it being chemically induced. And so then I found an underground training uh, led by Francois Borzat and Aharon Grossbard. And before we had to keep this all very hidden, but the, the things have happened to become more public. She wrote the book Consciousness Medicine, and they've been working with the mushroom Mazatec tradition out in Oaxaca for about 30 years. And they've been teaching, taught over 500 people in this deep lineage, wedding psychotherapy and indigenous wisdom. So I did a three-year training with them. Um, and to get into that, just to get in, you had to take Kokomi, which is a two-year somatic psychotherapy training. Then while doing that at the same time, I assisted for two years of psychedelic certificate training at CIS, the first above-ground training. And I went all in to write my dissertation on the topic. Partly, I was just, uh, since 18, I was just like, what's the most effective thing I could do while I'm alive? You know, and, and part of it was a cognitive problem. Like, where's this linchpin in the world that if it fit, things would make more sense? And the best idea I came across was from Terrence and Dennis McKenna. And it was this idea that we evolved because of the symbiotic relationship with the psilocybin mushrooms. And as far out that might stand as somebody that's heard that idea for the first time, um, I've been looking at it for 20 years. I read his book at 19, went through all of academia, looking at evolution in terms of anthropological evidence, biology, cultural development, uh, you know, the development of consciousness, everything fits. Um, haven't found one single retort to it. I had to defend it as my dissertation. I just kept finding more and more evidence, you know, specifically also that psilocybin stimulates neurogenesis, the growth of new neurons, that the brain physically begins to grow. That, I mean, that's a really huge component to all this. And so by, by this idea, it not only brings like this missing piece of how we got here, I just, I couldn't imagine like, why are we not like flabbergasted? Like we don't even know how we got here as a human race. Like how are we just not all stunned by this one huge, simple missing piece? And we're just keep living our lives, right? It's it's a major missing component of, of our logic of our development. Well, it is. It's super interesting when you say that. The why don't people actually look back far enough? And sometimes I wonder, like, are we just so influenced by theocracies that our assumption of how we got here is just boiled down to a simple point of, you know, divine consciousness emerging from a single point? Then we all just accept that whether we're secular or ingrainedly religious, you know, it's just part of all culture. And, and it's fascinating that you say that because you know what, man, like I've been my entire life, I always have it. And you'll be staring up at the night sky and there's billions of stars and all of a sudden your mind starts wandering to these seemingly completely unattainable thoughts about existence. And then you have a psilocybin experience and it's almost as if the answer has always been there. Now it's just shown to you. And, you know, in, in your book, one thing I want to say before we start discussing it is that it is very, very well put together. And you have basically cited so many very interesting people from like Ronald Segal, Michael Winkleman, Dennis and Terrence McKenna, like, you know, Yuval Harari, like so many people through biology, sociology, psychology, 
archaeology, anthropology, and you've woven this all together. And it's it's an extremely convincing argument. And I know I've heard the whole stoned ape theory before, and that yeah. had resonance to it. But the way you put your book together was a very compelling argument. So let's just kind of talk about that. You know, your, your book's broken into three segments, the past, the present, and the future. And I think the past probably is the most relevant and to some extent the present. So let's just kind of get into the idea. So how how does psilocybin necessarily pertain to the evolution of the human brain as well as our social archetypes, structures, hierarchies, and everything as we progress forward? No, thank you. Thanks for bringing it in. Um, you know, the first response that comes back is we really have to see things as a systemic and ecological context, you know. So the evolutionary framework of seeing as evolution is the biggest context we can get. Uh, from the Big Bang to now, that's been the process. Um, and so we have to see that all organisms evolve in relation to other organisms in the environment slowly, you know, over millions of years. And the fungi kingdom, one of the three large kingdoms on the planet, you know, in terms of also the animal kingdom and the plant kingdom, seems to evolve about 2.5 billion years ago. The, the animal kingdom, about 500 million. So it's about five times older than this. Um, mycelium created the soil, literally, for plants to develop on land. It was the first root systems of plants. Um, 90% of plants have a symbiotic relationship to mycelium. And mycelium being the larger body of the fungi, 80% of them stop existing when mycelium went out of existence. So it's, it's that interconnected and symbiotic to plants, right? And so it's, we're talking about this large underground net, this living web that sends electrical impulses to all the plants, break down nutrients of dead matter, disperses it. And it, so it's like this large container of the biosphere, right? It's, it's pretty much really the ground from which everything can spring up. And out of this structure that's very intelligent in its own ways, it breathes oxygen like animals. It's, it's very different than plants. Um, evolved psilocybin seems about 70 million years ago in the cap and stem formation. Um, not too far about when primates started to develop and evolve. And the captain's information, you know, pops up pretty much overnight, you know, easy to grab, easy to see, disperses the spores in the meantime. And so, we have primates and a lot of animals eat psychedelics. There's a good book called Animals and Psychedelics by Giorgio Saramani, you know, another ethnobotanist, really showing across the planet how many animals eat psychedelics. So we're talking about processes of nature that are very large. Um, and just to also hold on, we talked about for Ronald K. Siegel in his book, Intoxication, he calls um, the drive to intoxicate the fourth drive of evolution, that 93% of all animals, given the possibility after the drive for sex, food, and sleep, if they can change their consciousness through chemicals, they will. It's, it's that large, right? So it's, we're talking about these patterns that have always been there. We've just been kind of blind to them. So psilocybin grows naturally in true different species of mushrooms all across the world, uh, plentiful in the Africa savannas where they evolved. Uh, the great mycologist Paul Stamets is the most common mushroom in that area. We see archaeological evidence go for pretty far back. And so out of this large living net grows this compound psilocybin that fits into the 5-HT2A serotonin receptor in our brain better than serotonin itself with no biological toxicity. And we know now it creates a hyper-connected brain state. So I recommend people go see the MRI studies of psilocybin versus the placebo. Hyper-connected brain state and stimulates neurogenesis, the growth of new neurons. The brain physically begins to grow. And it stimulates what's known as spinogenesis, the re-enlivening of dendrites that have atrophied so the brain actually heals where it's had this atrophy, right? And so as the brain is having this experience of interconnection and unity within itself, people are experiencing unity and interconnection out in the environment with each other. Ultimately, stemming of, of a deep state of oneness interconnection that is the cosmos. You know, so you're just, as you're, you're realizing a truth that was just always there. Um, and it would have added a lot to our ancestors in terms of developing more empathy, uh, cohesive group dynamics, um, sexual stimulation, so there's more copulation taking place. And um, was a, Ronald Fisher, he was a psychologist in the 1970s, started doing experiments with microdosing of mushrooms. And at small doses, um, it enhances what's known as, as depth perception, visual acuity. So objects see more 3D, right? So colors are able to be more defined. And that has a big survival stuff if you're in the Africa savannas trying to see snakes in the grass or looking for nearest forces of food, you know, enhanced eyesight. You know, we know now with people use it for extreme sports, right? So there's a lot of enhancement. So at small doses, 
you know, more survival strategies at medium doses, deeper connection to each other and group bonding, which increases our survival by a lot. We, we survive largely because our ability to bond as a group, not reptiles are kind of go off on their own. We can communicate and do things together and coordinate. And a larger dose is this experience of awe and kind of realignment with nature. And, and for me, a huge insight of how and why does this develop came from this book, um, Darwin's Pharmacy. Um, and the author wrote, he read thousands of trip reports, is, is Richard Doyle, who's a professor. And he says that the main signature of the common psychedelic experience is that the participant realizes they're part of a vast interconnected living system and they should be retermed ecodelics. So we have this large ecological entity, the mycelium, that creates a substance that makes us ecologically aware. Huge benefits for everybody. This way we don't destroy the environment. We become more self-aware. We realize we all interconnected in each other. And so it's a way of the environment to create equilibrium and to develop and grow. The same way within your body, you have chemical compounds that start and send signals to one another to communicate like hormones and electrical impulses. The environment's always doing the same thing. So once we start seeing in this big context, it's just like we can see how and why we developed. And there's a lot more details to this. And also, it's what's caused us to get out of equilibrium was the falling away from certain uh, plants and fungi in our diet, specifically when we got to the agricultural revolution. As Yuval Noah Harari points out in his book, Sapiens, who we just mentioned, he said mushrooms are too elusive to have been integrated into the agricultural revolution. When we figured out that seeds turned into plants and trees, um, mushrooms are grown as spores. They're microscopic. And it wasn't until Terrence and Dennis McKenna in the 70s, they published the first psilocybin mushroom growers guide that we didn't even know how to do it. You know, so there's a lot of evidence how slowly as we begin to grow on food and focusing on the growth of the food that we're cultivating, we became detached from the rest of the chemical compounds found in nature, slowly pulled away. We already had religious experiences in the hardware to cultivate it through millions of years of psilocybin use. Then the focus became culture, you know, the rise of religions the rise of different social structures and kingdoms. The human drama became the main focus aside from like our connection with nature. And after a few thousand years in repression, we fell away and it seems we're reintegrating these huge mysteries um, that were there at the very beginning and actually just re-enlivening with the natural processes of nature and evolution. Well, it's also interesting too when you talk about that the agricultural revolution, which arguably was spurned on by the fermentation and creation of alcohol, and then since that subsequent point moving forward, and that was about 10,000 years ago, maybe, right. that we've actually had a 5% decrease in our neural mass. And whether right. that is the advent of alcohol in conjunction with the reduction of you know, neural stimulants, nootropics in the sense of psilocybin and various other psychedelic compounds, that arguably since that point, we've been somewhat declining. You know, neurologically, like, you know, and and moving away from something that we've been using for hundreds of thousands of years, arguably. And if you go back yeah. to our primate ancestors and the continuation of what you're referring to is just millions and millions of years of consuming, you know, we've just had this massive break in this specific type of diet for our soul, for lack of a better term. And in that period, we have industrialized genocides, all these different things. And it, it's unique when you, when you point it out in that way, you know, how all of these things sort of accumulate together to bring consciousness, to bring ideas of religion, to bring ideas of divinity. And then arguably by doing so with this rise in cognition, we created a system in which we just moved away from it. And so now we're almost doing this 180 and trying to get back into it. And, you know, it's, it's, I guess it's right back to what you said originally is that the vast majority of people that I know who have done psilocybin and not everyone, but most people at some point will have that experience that is undeniable of connectivity. And it's, you know, in your book, there's that reference to the the fungal mass, I believe, in Oregon that is, you know, potentially 8,000 years old, this massive body existing, you know, I, we talked about it on the second episode. And it's, you know, the ideas of consciousness. You know what I mean? Like this massive mycelial network that touches every single living organism on this planet in one way or another, that we have a capacity, like a key to enter into. And our receptor sites are actually far more fitted to that than they are to the own serotonin receptors that we have. And it's also unique to notice that serotonin plays a role in pretty much every living thing. It's like it's in bacteria, it's in reptiles, insects. And one other thing too that you had mentioned in the book too is that apparently in humans, 
psilocybin has a, a three to four times more affinity than it does to chimpanzees. Right, right. I mean, if we're looking just from a biological evolutionary standpoint of why is that, it's that we grew that affinity. And that's something that developed over time, that we were a part of a primate lineage that began to use these substances more and more. And that, that was that's the main shift that created us into humans. And one of the reasons, many reasons why I love this explanation so much is because it's so simple and kind of elegant, just following Occam's razor, while so many other theories of human evolution involved such grandiose things, whether the coming of God or another common one is uh, the creation of tools, change the environment and change our minds in this backward loop, right? Or it's like the inventing of cooking food and create an external stomach. There's all this stuff. I'm talking, it was very simple. It's just there's chemicals in the environment that do that. And we see now from the neuroscience, it really, really lines up. So one thing I want you to elaborate on, and you explain this quite adequately in the book, is that if we're looking at evolution in the sense that there are a series of random selective changes that occur over millions of years. And the ones that allow me to be more successful in my breeding practices are the ones that are carried on. And through millennia and millennia, that's how we have evolved to be the species that we are and how everything has evolved. So how does me taking psilocybin or my early ancestors more accurately necessarily lead to long-term changes in our genetic code that give us cognition, larger brain size, higher brain function, mm -hmm. and so forth? You know, in the book, I broke it down into several different, because uh, there's so many parts to focus on. I broke it into like group dynamics, because that's really huge. Our survival dependent on group dynamics in many ways. I brought it into language, which changed culture rapidly, and the ability to write and see things and grow as a civilization over time. Um, I broke it down to creativity, the ability to come up with new novel ideas, whether that be engineering, things in the environment or artistic. You know, so... so so many paths. So one easy example to see this is, you know, people can really kind of anchor in if they take an, a decent dose of a psychedelic like psilocybin that they get into a visionary state, meaning they're, they're in their form of sight, smell, taste, and touch, which is normal. And they're seeing this other visionary realm almost on top of it or with it, right? There's a deepening of imagination. I think that's pretty common of the psychedelic experience and irrefutable in many ways. And so this deepening of this experience of imagination over and over and create, create a new capacity for us to imagine. Other animals seem to be really in the present moment, sight, smell, taste, and touch. But this ability to imagine can help us create and plan a future, right? And see things and imagine, see patterns that imagine things, how they're going to be days from now. For like in city planning, if you're going to build a civilization, you need to imagine a future and have a vision. It can also help us reflect on our past through our imagination so all of a sudden this ability to imagine stretched our perception of time and our ability to relate through time to learn from the past in a new way get out of just our senses and to see the future so this happened over and over and increased our neocortex right over and over hyper higher orders of cognitive development um and so a lot of these changes just through epigenetics would have changed our DNA. It changes our biology. You know, we're seeing a reality with neurogenesis and hyperconnected brain states. It changes our biology, also changes our genetics. Our genetics evolve. The genetics are passed down. And so there's changes in genetics, which is really big, right? And we're talking about small changes over millions of years. They just really, really add up. Um, and there's also massive cultural changes. You know, we can even see, just point to language right now, and the idea that language evolved through a process of synesthesia, where our senses conflate, where ultimately everything is one, right? So in the state of oneness, everything kind of blurs together, where sound and meaning and symbols all of a sudden intertwined, you know? It's all of a sudden, I mean, a simple example, it's like somebody's pointing at something and saying rock, 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 and you're pointing at rock over and over. After a while, people get that, the sound, rock, associated, same thing, I don't have to point anymore, I just say rock, you know what I'm talking about. So we're doing this kind of stuff over and over, developing a language, you know, and, and part of the experience is it's so ineffable. You want to describe it, even whether it's psychedelics or in spiritual experience, there's this ex known experience of glossolalia, speaking in tongues and spontaneous utterings. There's a lot of energy moving through your system. So there would have been a drive to create language and to communicate and break our boundaries of individuality. And then with this vision realm, you, you involve at some point symbol systems, the alphabets. I mean, there you have the beginning of history, history really meaning like when writing was developed and, and what we know since then, right? Then you have the whole shift of culture of religions moving to texts to some degree other than what's experienced, 
you know the the advent of economics through through writing the of law of social oh, structure i mean like everything starts to shift with sort of the origination of writing that was generally thought to be just simple mathematical calculations of grain stores which would have been an advent after the yeah. the agricultural revolution right and yeah. so and then just one thing i want to get back to because the idea of being able to change your genetics in your lifetime is foreign to many people and generally right. thought of as being a little bit off. So yeah. there has been a lot of research put into this and that constant, constant stress can change your genetics. There, there's a variety right. to it. Can you just explain that just a little bit for the viewers? Yeah. You know, somebody that did good work in this area is Bruce Lipton. He wrote Biology of Belief and he was one of the first geneticists to really start looking and decoding the DNA, I think in the 70s, and then really focused on the work of epigenetics. Um even let's just look at the the standard older idea that genetics are kind of just set in stone. It's just like that, that doesn't really make sense. You know, that what is there's a computer code that's in there and it's just set in stone and random evolutionaries pops and we move forward. We, we look at us. Evolution's not that random. Sometimes there's weird mutations that occur, but mostly they're very adaptive out of the millions of possibilities of randomness that can occur. It's a small segment and moves towards more adaptiveness. Right. Um, as Ken Wilber really points out, you know, in, in his Religion of Tomorrow, because he was working in his graduate degree in biochemistry, then moved to philosophy and consciousness. You know, he's, he's like, a lot of random mutations are toxic. If you're just talking about random mutations, and then you would have to have random mutations that occur in a male and a female, the same ones, and then they would have to find each other and breed. I mean, there's a lot of things that make everything break down. Instead, we need to move to a paradigm that the universe self-organizes. Consciousness self-organizes. The universe self-organizes. It's not random. That's random. Um, and this organization runs from the Big Bang till now, from the creation of atoms, first protons, neutron, electrons, to atoms, and the atoms come together to, to with other form molecules. There are systemic ways that atoms bond together and that molecules bond together and that cells work. That's not random. There's a really depth, complex process, and it's very self-organizing, right? Which involves that there's some level of intelligence running through the cosmos. That's why we have intelligence in the first place. You know, we can talk about all that day, but at the end of the day, you're gonna have to refute that intelligence rises out of nothing or that it was already there, that consciousness arises out of consciousness, or there's nothing there. And even Stan Groff, you know, the great psychedelic researcher, you know, he says after 60 years in the field that psychedelics catalyze what's called holotropic states of consciousness, states that organically organize into wholeness. You know, even my body, if I cut it now, it tries to heal itself. It's, it's self-organizes into wholeness. On a biological level, the same thing is trying to happen on a psychological level, spiritual level, ecological level. And so these compounds that are part of that creates that. And our body moves into more and more holes. The movement's always into more and more wholeness. Um, Mikhail Wilber has this term whole on everything's a whole, a part, and a part of a larger whole. You know, that, that's it's just the process of evolution. And so that this occurs and these changes happen on every level, including our genetics. You know, I think we're, we're moving to a shift of systemic thinking and self-organizing phenomena, you know, in, in culture. And so it's easy then to see how something like that would be passed on, you know. And then on top of that, you have the cultural traits that are passed on, you know. So, so it's, it's a pretty big um, argument that I'm putting forward just because it's different. It's very simple and rational. Um, but even saying, you know, a lot of people I hear say, it's like, well, people can have spiritual, you know, experiences without psychedelics. And it's like, yeah, I hear that. We can. And that's because we've developed the hardware over time by having many spiritual experiences over many generations, over and over for millions of years, that the state became more possible. You know, our um, neocortex and all this high level development wasn't random. It's because it got used and experienced. And the same way... When people have these experiences, this neurogenesis, the growth of new neurons, like and and certain parts of the brain form and wire, it's that happening over and over, historically that gave us this hardware. And as you'd mentioned, it's the moving away from these compounds as experiences that started to decrease the growth of our brain. You know, I love a lot of different neurotropics, like whatever I can use to enhance my brain. I'm great. And these psychedelics seem to do that high levels. We have a lot of decades now study on creativity, on problem solving, on empathy you know, with psychedelics, you know, as uh, Tim Ferriss points out, all the billionaires I know without exception in Silicon Valley use psychedelics, right? So people that are creating the new parts of culture and technology, and there's a lot, there's people that have won the Nobel Prize, like, 
it was LSD that helped me have these breakthroughs. You know, well, and, there was, and that and was available to our ancestors. In Stanford, were there not, where people had complex mathematical problems or complex problems and they were given LSD. And then in the process of that experience, almost all of them had a solution to that complex problem by the time they were done. And if that's not an example of exactly what we're talking about, then I don't know what is. I mean, that's huge. And so we're talking about, and it's a big statement, but it's, it's, it's it all lines up that the creation of art, the creation of first mathematical thinking, of religions, you know, of, of, of city planning, of architecture and cohesion, these arose from these visionary realms. And, and the studies you just mentioned, I think the, the way to get in this study, you had to be like a scientist, engineer, you know, architect, artist that's stuck on a problem for 18 months. Yeah. That was like a requirement yeah, like a to get into the study. Again, roadblock. You're right. Yeah. And then 90% of the people in the study, and I think it was like 60 people, solved the problem within a day. I mean, that's huge. That's huge. We can solve most of the problems in the world, you know, but the problems in the world aren't necessarily engineering or cognitive problems. It's really shifting people's values. Well, it is. They're you all know, emotional. We, you know what I mean? Like one thing that's interesting that you talk about in your book, and, and I've actually read quite a bit about this, is that, okay. you know, Good. our tribes back when we were hunter-gatherers were polyamorous. There was no mm-hmm. not notions of monogamy. People just basically were one within the group, and there was no notions of ownerships mm-hmm. of sexuality. And psilocybin would actually have increased that in smaller doses and even in larger doses to some extent. And then as we moved into the agricultural revolution, like we were talking about ideas of monogamy and marriage Mm -hmm. and these weird sort of harshly structured religious ideologies kind of became the norm. And here we are now with high rates of divorce and depression and suicidal ideation and addiction. Like, I think it's safe to say that the experiments of sociology without psychedelics is proving to be faulty. You know what I mean? And, and that's almost what it is. If you consider the fact that hundreds of thousands of years, if not millions, our ancestors and primates and so forth have been consuming psychedelics. And, you know, and Ronald Siegel's book talks about that. The drive for animal intoxication is a very real thing. It's not unique to humans. You know, this, this is sort of a right of being alive is a desire for augmentation psychologically. And that we, you know, have got to this point where now we've had what, arguably four or five hundred years of sort of a, this moving away from psychedelics and look what happens. We're at each other's throats, Cuban <laughs> missile crises and all these nonsense going on. And, and again, it's an overgeneralization, but at the same time, like it, it kind of fits with the narrative that you're creating in your, in your book that, you know, the absence of is creating a lot more problems than what was happening with. Totally. And, and there aren't, we can definitely go into like the shadow side of psychedelics and, and what could happen as we move into culture. Cause that, that's a good, you know, to bring balance, but in general, um, the positives far exceeds any kind of harm that may come from the use of them. And at the core, I think of the psychedelic experience and you can see it as a, like a, the perennial philosophy you get through the meditation or whatever is, is this experience of oneness. And that's our, like our deep truth. And once you experience this unity with yourself, a lover, like through Tantra, with the environment, with God, your value shift and your, your behavior shifts, right? And so the idea of war seems utterly ridiculous. And we spend like, even in the U.S., most of our tax money goes to the military. I think 10 times more than um, in this country than any other country. And, a massive amount of resources that can go to advancing our species, to caring about it, to learning. I mean, to just we can even imagine it could, it could the joy and pleasure. I don't even care, but it's just being kind of spent on this tactic that should we ever actually use our whole arsenal, it'd be devastating for the whole planet. Oh, the, the planet wouldn't you know, exist. So, if, we, if we use yeah, a fraction right. of the arsenal, the yeah. planet wouldn't exist. I think, yeah. I think we have close to 10,000 nuclear bombs in the U.S. Um, I think Russia has maybe half the amount. It's much less. But uh, I just we've set off two on on human populations before, and it was one of the worst atrocities in human history. Oh, yeah, right? exactly. so we, we've way we've way overdone it. Absolutely. So even myself, um, in terms of ethical change, um, I took mushrooms, my first Burning Man, about. 14 years ago and there's this drive i'm like i have to get to the temple i don't know why i have to get to the temple kind of lay down had this kind of death rebirth experience and became vegan <laughs> you know it's just like yeah. all all my di- like every day like i'm like okay cool uh let's not cause harm even there you know out of out of love because i could feel what an animal feels and so there's more interconnection experience which means also the feeling of pain 
I can cause to others and that changes my behavior. I'm not saying people have to go there, but, but that shifts that. And then, and it was also under psychedelics. I was like, fuck, like really looking at polyamory and different ways of relating because I was also born in a very like monogamous, you know, kind of culture where my dad's from Iran, you know, the Islamic, my mom, Mexico Catholic, you know, they're kind of strict. And then I grew up in Arizona. It's very kind of more still traditional Republican base. And the idea of kind of breaking that form was hard. It's still taking years of work. It's like, there's many ways to relate, not just the patterns we have. And part of this, again, comes from this experience of unity, you know, again, very ethically doing things with a lot of attunement and care, but there's ways we can shift these patterns. And then reading the book Sex at Dawn, the prehistory of modern sexuality was also really huge of like, how do primates relate to sex? That's, that's where we evolved from. How do hunter and gather cultures relate to sex? And then really seeing again for millions to hundreds of thousands of years, there's a lot of benefits to group communion. That strengthens the bond, the belonging, the security. You know, if a, there's a child that's born, it's like it's the um, a child of the tribe. You know, so, but once you start breaking down nuclear families, which just isn't bad, there's just more attachment trauma and neuroses because everything depends on two people taking care of the child. You know, like a lot of the larger fabric is broken apart. So there's something interesting about what you just said, and I completely agree with you. There still are multiple hunter-gatherer groups who still practice polyamory, and to them, the idea of monogamy is is ridiculous and atrocious. But when we're talking about hunter-gatherer groups, which you know Harari postulates will be between 20 and 25 people, the amount of people that you can actually know before you have to splinter off into other groups, polyamory would probably work creating a sense of community in that environment. But now that with globalism and the internet, community seems so significant. And we've moving away from it so hard. And like you said too, like community now just simply exists within a family and maybe some idle social groups you have, as opposed to, you know, people living and depending on one another for their life and having these mm. deep-seated connections on a day-in, day-out basis. Like I, I feel mm. that for the last hundred years, maybe even fifty years, or even really in the advent of mm. technology, we've been motivated more to alienate ourselves as opposed to create a sense of established community. Absolutely, you know, and, and just a small, just to reflect, in terms of number size, there's a number called Dunbar's number, and that's when groups likely would have split, and it's at 150. So, like, it seems to be at 150, you can, most people have some intimacy after that, these strangers who probably would have split it into half each time we evolved to 150, split into half. So, but in terms of what you're getting to, I think it's a core of the issues of today's problems. Um, if our truth is unity, that's our end of the day, like, well, that's where we come from, that's a part of our deep consciousness. Almost all our pain comes as experience of fragmentation and feeling isolated and all. So most of the work I've been doing is around depression, anxiety. That's why most people come to psychedelics. And I feel I've been very well to distill down like what is depression? Depression is I don't like myself. I'm not good enough. And so you're being in relationship with the self as somebody doesn't feel worthy and good. And it always has this experience of feeling disconnected and not part of the whole. And it goes together. If you're feeling you're not relating to anybody, you don't have community and deep connection with your family, then you're feeling isolated, then your self-esteem goes down, right? And you're feeling no belonging. And then, and you feel more anxiety because there's people aren't there to take care of you. You have to do everything yourself. All eventually leads into like suicide or mass shootings, right? It's, it's really intolerable to be in the state of like deep, low self-esteem and then anger at everybody else and so on, right? And psychedelics give you this, breaks that illusion of separation. And we're like, of course we're one, which is the most healing experience in the world. When we're one, you're filled with love. Love is the interconnection and unity of all the things, right? And there's a sense of belonging, if it's not to a particular group, to the planet, the cosmos. And so if we look at Maslow's hierarchy, the psychological you know, developmental model, it's like first there's survival needs, really important. Then is security. I need to feel safe. Then belonging because like, we evolved out of these kind of like group dynamics, then like connections with friendships and romantics, um, and then self-esteem. You know, I, I need to feel good about myself and that comes through social status, through achievement, through accomplishment, whatever it is to, you need to feel you're worthy for some reason, good enough. Then you, once you have enough self-actualization, I know who and what I am, regardless of the environment, I've cleaned my identity, I've become my soul, which, so you need a certain amount, it's like, I think of a caterpillar eating enough food before it could turn to the butterfly. It's like eating self-esteem throughout the day. That's what people are doing. Once you finally have enough, you can own how amazing you are, like in a very divine way. Then at the end, he puts transcendence. He worked out in the last 10 years of his life where the meaning comes of being of service and helpful to others. You are part of a larger whole. That is your identity. And so the way you show that is becoming love embodied, which is helping the whole. You know, So there's, there's a very clear trajectory here. 
And when people's needs aren't being met, then that's when things kind of fracture. And I think a huge one in our world, especially our country, is that sense of belonging. Yeah, no, completely. Like, and you know, and on top of that too, you talk about self-esteem. It's, I have this weird little theory where I feel that, you know, since capitalism really became a rampant force in Western culture, advertising really complemented it. And I think that advertising is fundamentally designed to wear down people's self-esteem and you're constantly being projected against someone who is fundamentally more attractive than you, smarter than you, better than you faster, skinnier, or whatever. And we're constantly put on edge for that dopamine release of buying some shit that somehow makes us better. And then you couple that with just general isolation of the culture that we currently exist in. And I think that COVID made that so deeply apparent. You know, before it was just, you know, habit. Where this is how we, the slow evolution of our culture. And then post-COVID, you're starting to really see the significant consequences of prolonged alienation in people and recognizing that we are a profoundly social mammal. And so this mm-hmm. kind of ties into something else is that you also facilitate psilocybin experiences in Jamaica where it's legal with the Atman retreats. And so you know, outside of your own psilocybin experiences, you also facilitate for other people. So you have a very solid grasp on what people are working through in those experiences. Mm -hmm. And I would imagine that you follow up with integration afterwards and allow people to sort of express themselves. So do you see these tropes sort of come up very frequently in psychedelic experiences? The, you know, the aloneness, the the notion of self-esteem and all these things like you know, how does how do a lot of these experiences roll out for you? Because you're you're bearing witness to a lot of interesting vulnerability. Yeah, I could wish I could only express words the magnitude and range of all the things I've seen. Um because it's 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 unlike any other experiences really like sure. I've ever you know, it's it's like seeing in terms of the metaphor I just used of a caterpillar to a butterfly, it's like witnessing over and over the cocoon break and a butterfly emerge for the first time. You know, it's it's, it's unbelievable and, and, and beauty to see people open up and heal in that way. So it's it is magical. You know, statistics, eighty percent success rate, treatment resist depression and the life anxiety addictions and those are people that are coming with illnesses in terms of mystical experience 65 percent of the time so it's, it's really fucking wonderful at this point I've, I've gone through enough and seen just the patterns where if somebody's coming for me anxiety and depression i can tell them like are you going through this this and this is is your self-esteem low are you feeling disconnected all it's it's 100 on you know because these are deep universal needs like what i just meant through with with with, with maslow's hierarchy um and so then because I know the needs that aren't being met, I, I can help them meet those needs, you know, and I know it's really simplistic to say, but the lack of the needs being met a lot of times is, is, is come from this illusion of separation, but it needs to be embodied. So people need to get better and deeper relationships, right? But it's hard to do if you have low self-esteem. So you have to work on loving yourself and helping yourself and, you know, living a life that you're proud of. Um, so I, even like, you make this model even more simpler. At the core of the shift is a shift in identity. And you can see this in Wilbur's work, as Maslow's work, and a lot of the people that study you know, um, uh, developmental psychology. And so the shift is from a self that thinks it's fragmented and broken. I'm not good enough. You know, I'm not loved. I am dot, 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 to, you know, I am you know, worthy. I am love. I am precious. You know, I am connected to everything. You know, I am divine. And so it seems to be their identity, the whole idea of ego death, you know, that's common is a, the identity cracks the shell, the ego part that's made out of fear and shame can crack and the light that they actually are breaks through many times for the first time in their life. You know, I've seen people get out of decades of depression in one journey. It is gorgeous. It's unreal. You know, you sit there a lot of times you're like, because you feel it in your body, like, wow, this is the moment everything just changed for them. And a lot of these people were connected years later and they're completely different people with different life trajectories. And, you know, you look back and they were like, they were suffering for years and now they feel really empowered and with a sense of purpose and drive. Um, That happened in my life. And as a small side note, it, it doesn't happen all the time. And that's been one of the hardest parts of this work where... I've seen it effective about 90% of the time. The studies have seen about 80, right? So it's not 100%. And so there are people that come that are deeply suffering um, 
and it doesn't work for whatever. Maybe they're on the receptors. Maybe they need more journeys. Maybe they're so disconnected from themselves. Maybe they need a higher amount. For whatever reason, the, the treatments hasn't worked for a small subset of people. And then it's hard for them. They're like, even this doesn't work for me. You yeah, know? the magic so cure. You know what I mean? Like it yeah. almost would re-traumatize yeah. someone because they're like, I am so yeah. fucked up that this isn't even helping me. And like, I've and I, I haven't done. Sorry. So I was going to say, like, I have a friend of mine who's done quite a few, you know, personal higher, higher dose psychedelics and just like banging his head against the wall. And and I feel bad for him. I'm yeah. like, man, like, you know, just, oh, yeah. and I don't know what to tell you. Like it's, is totally. it, yeah. Like, you know, is, is it some sort of biological mechanism? Is, is there something else going on? And, and I feel like that, that is kind of problematic in the sense. And now when you really look at it, like 80 to 90% success is astonishing when it comes down to any type of oh, mental totally. health treatment. You know, it's, it's right. revolutionary, but yet people will still harp on that and be like, oh, well, it's not, you know, you guys are over-exaggerating. And it's like, well, well, no, like, well, what, what's the rate of success with conventional psychological treatments currently? It's, it's designed to allow people to tread water so they can still function in society as opposed to actually feel some sense of wholeness within them. And that's sort of a yeah. unique thing. But, you know, one thing I sometimes wonder is like, mm. you know, you need to be programmed to function in society. And then programming doesn't necessarily have to be negative, but you know, it's it's a mixture of things. It's your it's your parents' insecurities and their inadequacies projected onto you. It's you know, it's your experience growing up and you need to have negative experiences to build coping mechanisms that can actually allow you to function in a fundamentally dangerous and harsh world. But mm -hmm. it's once you have that programming that allows you to be unprogrammed. You know what I mean? And that's that's to me what psychedelics yeah. are, is is coming mm -hmm. back and unprogramming yourself as an adult with a mature idea of who and what you want to be and then selectively going through and and rearranging yourself and realizing at the end of the day everything is simply just about loving yourself yeah, and totally. how profoundly difficult that is oh absolutely it's a lifelong relationship it's like being in a domestic relationship with somebody else except this domestic relationship with you it's it's a lifelong deepening into loving um, with this being that you are. And that's why, again, it gets to the core of depression. If you don't like yourself, you're forced to be in a domestic partnership with somebody you don't like. It's inherently depressing, right? And there's no right. way out of it. Yeah. So the shift is cultivating and deepening that relationship, saying sorry for the, you know, the ways you've treated yourself, really heal and move forward and start, you know, this is a lifelong marriage that you're in with self. So it's really kind of claiming there's no out. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, yeah, exactly. You know, and I've said sometimes to a lot of people too, I'm like, most people who are reasonably psychologically healthy would never tolerate being in a relationship with someone who treats them the way that we treat ourselves. Yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah, but for but sure. you're right. It, You've got mm -hmm. no place to go. <laughs> it's... It's, it's, it's all abusive, you know, the voices people get, because even this idea we have like of an inner child we see in parts work, you know, because there's this young part of us that listens to everything we're saying to ourselves. Yeah. You know, if somebody talked like that to their child or somebody else's child in the street, you'd be like, that's fucking abusive. You, you didn't interfere. And yet people are self-abusing themselves internally all the day at that level of criticism and judgment. And that leads to more and more shame. So, I mean, imagine telling a child you're shitty several times a day. After a few years, it's barely functioning. You know, and, right. and depressions yeah. right now worldwide, the largest reason of disability by the World Health Organization, you know, so like depression is the most reason people aren't functioning. And that is because of constant self-abuse that they've internalized. Absolutely. So yeah. kind of as a, an interesting segue from this, you had mentioned shadow work before, and we had a guest mm -hmm. previously who talked very briefly about shadow work. So what is that? Like, is that, is that based on, you know, sort of Jungian views of the internal shadow and the darkness that we all have? Like, what what is, I want to say Cole's notes, because that, that's a big conversation topic, but, you know, a, a summarized version of like, what is shadow work? Because it comes up very frequently, but it never really has a tangible explanation. You know, part of it is because there's so many layers to the shadow. Um, just Jungians, Jungians, Carl Jung's kind of work in depth psychology. I mean, there's a personal self, so there's a personal shadow, then there's a collective shadow, right? We are holes within larger holes, and there's the ability to tap into that larger structure. Um, it's a realm I'm absolutely fascinated by. So, and then more of a defined, if you're going to break it down, it's parts of us that are 
repress or unintegrated, right? So if my personality has some level of unison or wholeness, there's other parts of my unconscious or subconscious that come up that I've broken off for whatever reasons. Some of these patterns of breaking things off are intergenerational, you know, things of just religion has repressed a lot through generations. So sexuality is a common one. People repress it early on because of shame. And so that's repressed. And then it breaks through and leaks, or uh, other more animalistic parts of their personalities, or sometimes it's the positive parts of people, the golden shadow that people repress. Um, but one big reason it's it's been a fascination in my life was um, it came very clear through me in early psychedelic work, even at age 19, 20, 23, where I had this specific journey where I took mushrooms recreationally with friends um, and a 15 foot devil up here, like the actual iconic devil, horns, yeah. red, <laughs> little minions in, in the parking lot. And you're like, this shouldn't be possible. <laughs> like what if fucking is going on? And it went on for hours. It made me wrestle with this archetype. And, you know, it was, it was one of the most profound experiences I've ever had because it got me really kind of deepening in what is this devil. And it's like humanity has created this archetype or it's universal, whatever we want to look at it, of the utmost embodiment of evil in the shadow. It's the polar opposite of good embodied in a form, right? And you see it's animal and human, there's horns, and it's red, all that. And there, we can see biblical inter interpretations of how it rose, but it seems to be much, much bigger than that. And so what I saw is when we wrestle and integrate with the shadow, we gain a lot of power. You know, one way is if we see those repressed parts, when we integrate those repressed parts, there's more wholeness. There's more sense of self. There's more awareness, right? There's more acceptance and non-judgment. There's more love. And so, the, as I mentioned, the integration of the shadow creates power, but to hold that power... We can only hold power ethically to the level we're holding love. So it grows in that way. First is deepening of love, then power. Um, and so at the depth of the transformation, something I have found that really kind of shortcuts the process for everybody, having the, the change has to do with identity, is helping clients and everybody I work with to really claim this identity of I am love. I think it is more foundational than my name, than oh, because that's I think every atom is created from that. Like if we think of everything as God, God's love with a voice, right? It is this unity. So claim that as your deep identity. I am love. From that place, it's easy to integrate anything that's shadow because that's you're looking at it through love. Shadow kind of splits through judgment and shame and fear, right? And so as you see all these parts come up and you're you're like you are love and you're loving it. It's not just the quality you have. It's easy to see and accept everything in non-judgmental way. And then after I am love is I am power, right? And that really kind of, other than empowering, um, gets rid of a lot of fear. When people are scared, they feel powerless. It's like they're shrinking and this thing is big. When people look at a devil, it's just an example, or a large monster, they're all of a sudden small, this thing is big, they're feeling powerless. But if you're feeling powerful, you're feeling very capable of holding and taking on the world. And to create the transformation we want collectively, we need to feel powerful to get things done. And, and power doesn't need to seem, mean oppression over others, the sun's the most powerful thing in our solar system. And it's just radiating power. It's internally creating power. And you know? so, so these two parts together, I think also help us. It's like, it's the result of shadow work, but they're two qualities that really help us confront and integrate the shadow. See, that's interesting because I've always thought the shadow work is in a sense, like, I, I think people very frequently forget that we're animals. And you, yeah. you look at the Serengeti and you see a hyena tearing apart a pride and gazelle and consuming the, the fetus. And people look with, with horrific stares at how evil this is. But I'm like, but it's not evil because if that hyena doesn't do that, there's going to be some other predator coming over and stealing whatever food they don't eat. And if they don't, then their pups starve and then there's the end of their genetic line. So does evil necessarily right. exist in the natural world? And we are a direct extension of that. And sometimes I wonder is that have we evolved with our, our conscious capacities to have ethical structures and morality, that these are just reflections of the time where we were chimpanzees roaming around, killing one another and doing like, you know, like early primate right. structures, you know, is it just reminiscent of our old, old genetics of brutality mm -hmm. and like necessity brutality, but brutality nonetheless. Mm -hmm. I feel like the shadow is a reflection of the animal within everyone. You know, it's totally, you know, yeah. I was just going to say is like, there's I mean, so much of the splitting. Point. Go, please. Go for it. Go for it. Yeah. Oh, like this, I'll, I'll go. Yes. Johnson, he said that one must make a beast of himself to get rid of the pain of being a man. And I, 
sometimes wonder if that's the opposite but please continue sorry yeah yeah no i mean i love that quote uh avenge sevenfold a band i love in their song backcountry opens up with that quote and uh, so Mm. it's it's definitely a fun one to really feel into and so much of the shadow is the separation first comes from judgment that creates shame of like something is evil right so if people are walking around that I'm good and somebody else is evil, or there is my religion's good, other religions are evil, or my country's good, you know, other ones are evil, and it creates that kind of polarity. Um, we're definitely projecting our unknown parts on the other and identifying with just a light, and all of a sudden we're at war, eternal war forever. And that's what I saw in that journey. As long as I'm looking at the devil with either I'm superior or I'm scared of it, we're at this eternal war of, of, of duality. And the only way to approach evil or darkness is with love and to look at the devil and be like, I love you too, right? Like it kind yeah. of unifies and softens everything. Um, and so what I, I, you know, having sit with this large question of evil for so long of what is it ultimately if it doesn't quite exist, if I've had to break it down, it's this balance between selfishness and others, right? Which is this kind of dance we're doing all the time, even in intimate relationships, it's balancing self needs and the needs of others, Right, and so what we consider evil um, is the overinflation of selfishness, and so all the sins, whether it's uh, laziness or cowardice, you know, avarice and greed, you know, maliciousness, it's just overuse of selfishness, right? So, like, what's the most evil thing I could kind of think of is um, creating pain on somebody else for a sadistic pleasure, right? Like ripping somebody apart just so I can laugh and have kicks. That's yeah. like the most evil thing I could think of, right? Where it's just like, I'm getting a little bit of pleasure here at the huge expense of somebody else, you know? And so it's that balance of self, the egoic kind of self while balancing the needs of others. That's, that's ultimately what this, this, this thing kind of comes down to. And so in terms of bringing it back to cycle to like capitalism, the world we're in and where it's kind of out of balance is the capitalism pretty much just focuses on the self, you know, and it, it, it grew out of good reason, you know, capitalism just to, to give it, you know, just its, its balanced view. It's, it grew out of this um, fertile soil of before it was the royalty and the clergy and military system that controlled the capital, right? So like the king kind of controlled everything. And then people fought for individual rights so people can have their own markets and their own land and so on. So it came out of a good reason of there is more freedom. But because it just focuses still 100 years of later just on the individual and not on society and not on the environment, then the philosophy is to accumulate so much for personal gain regardless really on the impact of the other people around you, the society, or the environment. So it's killing our world because we live in an interconnected world, right? And so – it's not that capitalism is it's bad. It's just it's just a partial picture on all of reality, and it's run rampant. So you have CEOs that make you know a thousand x than the employees at the bottom, or yeah. that because the focus is on personal gain, let's just eat up the environment, you know, and we all die. So so it's just it's creating a more of a holistic approach to this. It's like how do we make this sustainable for everybody? Ultimate again, rooting on this deeper truth that that we are everybody. Well, and I sometimes wonder too, like I, I really deeply feel that this psychedelic renaissance that, we, that we're referring to and apparently in right now is is sort of the antidote to modern culture in the sense that, you know, I feel that the more people that have the experiences, these more people that have this profound sense of empathy and oneness, the more apt we are as a collective whole to influence and move towards something that is slightly more positive and slightly less alienating. And, and you know, it's, it's simple things like not everything has to be these massive movements towards positive expression, even simple things. You know what I mean? Like I find that most people I know that have experience with psychedelics and they don't have to necessarily be profound. They're just more apt to not be projecting their own shit in the world around them which at best is just not projecting destructive behavior. And, you know, <laughs> like it's what, which is, is entirely reasonable. Like I really do think that psychedelics moving forward, if, if we can make this whole movement soar through a mixture of decriminalization, legalization, and, and whatever we need to do to get this happen, will fundamentally cause a paradigm shift in human consciousness and allow us to be less terrified about our existence and move back towards a state of some degree of community and empathy. And I don't think I'm being naive. 
you know, because I see it in myself. I see it in the people around me who are engaging in psychedelic use. You know what I mean? Like, I, I really think that if we want to be a species in several hundred years, we're going to have to really embrace psychedelics right now. And yeah, I'm very much hoping that that is where we end up. You know, like I'm, I'm hoping that as we look back, you know, even 50 years from now, we, you know, look, look at our society and our culture and our capitalistic practices. And we sort of chuckle to ourselves at how immature we were, but you know, maturity takes time and it's difficult. <laughs> I, mean, I, I mean, I just definitely resonate a lot. There's nothing that gives me a bigger hope for the world. And, um, and as grandiose that may sound for others, it's, uh, it's because I haven't seen anything as close to as effective. Right. And we're not talking, it's like, you know, a breathing technique that saves the world or meditation or religion. It's just like, we're talking about, there's many compounds throughout the planet that grow everywhere. Really that can give you a pretty profound experience, even the clinical studies, right? Set, setting mystical experience of, of interconnection unity 65% of the time. I mean, those are pretty fucking high numbers. Yeah, man. Right? That shifts your entire experience of who you are and the way you live. Um, and really, you only need one of those your whole life, maybe three, you know? Like, even I've had hundreds of journeys, a lot for myself. But really, if I only had that big one at 18, I'd be a drastically different person still. You know, it just takes that one breakthrough of like, oh my God, this is real. And so, you know, we're trying to shift things through debates and philosophies and all. Let's keep doing it. Or religion or we've been trying to shift into a better way as a species for a very, very long time. Things barely, barely, barely move. They do move forward, the barely. But nothing creates that egoic puncture, you know, of like in terms of like what can change capitalism, you know, because there is the selfish drive, which is rewarded in many ways and like applauded it's like you made a billion dollars everybody around you claps right and everybody's like, ah, like this is amazing and i don't know if you could have completely ethically made a billion dollars in today's world no. right it's no. really the level of harvesting like, resources yeah yeah the way you have to pay your employees so low so you because the focus is maximize profit in terms of finances and lower the costs even if it's, it's kind of unethical right so well I, let's be I, realistic i don't think it's yeah. possible to build right no now. If, if any company had a billion dollars chances are at some point down the line of production children are making shit for that company it's it's yeah. inevitable yeah. you know what i mean like <laughs> those profits don't exist without that unfortunately so yeah, we're coming so to. Go ahead, go for it. I was just gonna say we're coming to a bit of an end here, and so I just want to say, is there, you know, you you lead a free monthly public online group called Developing a Relationship with the Scared Mushroom, and that's out mm -hmm. of the San Francisco Psychedelic Society. Do you want to just sort of talk about yeah, that? Please? I mean, I love them. We did that for well over a year. We've put it on pause right now. I'll come back and do it. And it was amazing. We had sixty to eighty people show up. I just wanted to give a more public offering that was free for people to come ask questions and join a community. Um, but I'm going to start leading retreats and ceremonies here, um, you know, in the Oakland Hills soon. So people can see my website and reach out if they're interested. Um, we're still running things, you know, in Jamaica may or not go on a pause, but then also work with silo health. So people go to P S I L O health.co. We created a free four hour online training for, to teach people how to sit for each other. Again, to, how do we open source this and democratize it? So, cause working with a guide or therapist can be very, very expensive and then people have to travel. How about, you know, people in minorities or lower social economics places that like they can't even afford regular therapy. So how do those communities heal? So it's like we've created a framework and training that's free of how they can begin to heal each other, you know? So just given harm reduction models, um, my book's out there, you know? So definitely on all the platforms, including Audible. Yeah. And, and I want to say again, the book is fantastic and our discussion on it, like scratch the surface. There's so much information in that. And like this, this was basically your entire PhD thesis, was it not to some extent, like all yeah, sort of like, I mean, put together and orchestrated like it's. It was a lot. It was 20 years of reading and synthesizing information. I've read 75 books just on psychedelics to be able to write that. It's the most comprehensive book I've come across on that. Yeah. And then it was years of the dissertation gave me, I went to partly to the doctors to write this book, gave me the container in which to sit there and focus on it. And then it got me, you know, a part of a committee and everything to really refine it, to get everything just um, as well said and as backed up as I possibly, you know, could. 
Um, well, every statement you, because make, it, for you, you yeah. back up with citations to whether an anthropologist, an archaeologist, a psychologist, a psychiatrist, like it's everything is documented. You really don't leave anything untouched, which is I, I appreciate actually when I was reading it. You know, I appreciate it. Thank you. You know, it's, again, the, the statement of, you know, we evolved psilocybin mushrooms, I think, for most people is coming out of the left field. And because of its implications of how it changes the way ourselves, evolution, the way it legitimizes psychedelics, the way it's a portal back into nature and through these spiritual realms, like it shifts everything and reorganizes us. It's just kind of us coming back home. And I thought, you know, given that it's so different or out there, I'd get pushback. But because of the reasoning is so sound, I've got yet to get a single pushback. You know, I had well, to defend people, it in the yeah. committee. People yeah. might somehow ethically be like, this isn't right, or or just based on their own internalized opinions. But fundamentally, when you read it, you really don't have much to push back on. You know what I mean? Like you're reading like shit. You, <laughs> that's a cohesive argument. No, yeah, no, it, it was yeah. very well done. And just for everyone, again, it's the psilocybin connection, psychedelics, the transformation of consciousness in the evolution of the planet, an integral approach. And we'll obviously leave a link to that on... Uh, when we release this episode as well as pretty much everything else that you've been doing as well so cool. yeah you know Jahan, like honestly it was it was a super pleasure when i got to speak with you before this interview yeah. was awesome and I'd, I'd like to have another conversation with you again too man because you're always an interesting person to speak with i'd love to be back anytime thanks Adam. and that sounds fantastic so i again i appreciate your time and i look forward to talking to you again man take care you too brother likewise Thank you.